It's the South's biggest deal for AJC podcast listeners. For a limited time, subscribe and you'll get digital access to the AJC for $1.99 per week. For life, as long as you keep your subscription. That's our sports and politics coverage, breaking news and in-depth investigations, food and dining, and more from AJC.com every day for life. You'll also unlock access to our app, exclusive films, events, and newsletters. Subscribe now by going to AJC.com slash start. That's AJC.com slash start for new subscribers only. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. A celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to the second season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, death in a hot car, mistake or murder. Go to AJCBreakdown.com for additional background, photos, video, and more on the Justin Ross Harris case. Previously on Breakdown. I had my little badge, and it was easy to be concerned with winning instead of what I should have been concerned with, which was doing justice. It was so easy. And it's easy to believe that the ends justify the means when you think you're righteous. CD said that they met online. It was August or September 2013. She would have been 16 at the time. And she was in high school and the defendant knew her age, correct? That is correct. It's really jury deselection. Nobody gets to pick the jurors they want. We only get to say, who don't we want? Who are our worst nightmares? Who can we not live with? We're approaching the end of the very painstaking process of jury selection in the Justin Ross Harris murder case. And we've confronted a truly vexing question. What if potential juror after potential juror already thinks Harris is guilty? Hasn't heard the evidence. Hasn't listened to the arguments. But Justin Ross Harris is guilty. I'm Bill Rankin, the legal affairs writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and this is the Breakdown Podcast. So let's break down jury selection in the hot car murder trial. The names of the jurors are being kept confidential, and they're often referred to by their designated number. So far, most of the potential jurors who have been summoned for duty have said they think Harris did it. Like juror number 41, she's a pharmacist with five grandchildren who likes to look at movies on the Hallmark Channel. When questioned in court, she said, The evidence is going to say he's guilty. That's common sense. I can't believe he's not guilty. And if that wasn't enough, Maddox Kilgore, Harris's attorney, revealed that she wrote this in her juror's questionnaire. And your response was that I know taking a life for a life is not what Christ thought, But if this defendant were to be executed legally, I'd approve and understand. And that's what your your beliefs are. Not every prospective juror wants to execute Harris, but many more still think he's guilty. Let's take juror number 47. Here is what she said. For me, if you do forget there's a child in the car because you're distracted by things you shouldn't be doing, either way, you're responsible because you shouldn't be distracted by those things. She's an accountant 
who has lived in Cobb County for 36 years. She has two children and two grandchildren, and she has a preconceived notion of the case. No, she said, just based on what I believe, there's really no excuses for it. Based on what I believe. In a case that created a nationwide sensation, much of the public knows a great deal, or believes it does, about the death of little Cooper Harris and his father's role in it. This has made jury selection both fascinating and infinitely complicated. So far, about a third of the jurors qualified for service have said they think Harris is guilty. The deck is clearly stacked against Ross Harris. No one's gotten up there and said, I think he's innocent. You know, I'm biased against for the defense because I, you know, don't think he did it. That's my colleague Christian Boone. He's covering the trial with me for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. A lot of them have just come out and just said flat, like, I think he's guilty. I, you can't convince me otherwise. We even saw some emotion from him uh, on Tuesday when one of the jurors, in detailing why she thought he, he was guilty, started talking about uh, Cooper's final moments when he was in his car seat, you know, locked in the car, and how he was found with scratch marks on his face, you know, presumably from just a desperate attempt to escape. And that brought some, uh, some tears from the father. But there's not a lot of sympathy from any of the jurors toward, toward Ross Harris at this point. But I would say there, you know, there, there do seem to be enough people who take it seriously and who will be even-handed, or at least say they will, who have not really formed an opinion. Some people really don't know much about the case. And then there are a couple who want to be on this jury. So I do think we'll find 12 qualified jurors who have, you know, if they believe he's guilty, then at least an open mind that can be changed if the evidence supports that. Jury selection began with a confidential questionnaire asking jurors about their history and their attitudes. The questionnaire is pretty revealing, sometimes shockingly so, if the juror answered it honestly. We don't actually see the jurors' answers. They're kept secret. But sometimes the attorney's questions will tip us off to what the juror wrote. The questionnaire is 17 pages long with 93 questions. So it probably took about as long to fill out as a federal tax form. Here are some of the questions the jury pool confronted. Have you, or as someone you know, ever had a sexual addiction? Have you, or a friend or family member, ever left an animal or a child in a car, even if only briefly? Have you ever looked at a pornographic website? Have you ever checked the contacts, call logs, or search history on the cell phone of your significant other? Then there was a series of questions about how they get news whether they watch such TV shows as Law & Order or CSI. They're also asked whether they had watched any legal documentaries, such as Making a Murderer, or listened to our Breakdown podcast. Some said they had. They were also asked numerous questions about their knowledge of the case and their opinions about it. For almost two weeks, they've come in, one by one, and sat in the jury box. All the attention in the courtroom is focused on them. Some seem unaffected by it and have joked with the lawyers. Others have been so nervous that they were visibly shaking. The questionnaire tells the jurors that they'll have to serve four to six weeks from the beginning of opening statements. So, from filling out the questionnaire at the beginning to filling out the verdict form at the end, they will have invested as much as eight weeks. For that service, they are paid $25 a day, not even half of minimum wage. They also get free parking and free county Wi-Fi. So there's that. During individual questioning, some have become emotional, and not just because of the tragedy of Cooper Harris's death. Juror number 32, 
a self-employed web designer, told the court that she had worked 13 years building her business. She would lose a lot of clients if she had to sit for nearly two months on the jury, she said. She became increasingly emotional as she spoke about the impact on her livelihood. And I really angry that I'm going to have to lose something that I've worked so hard for because of somebody else's poor choices. She was excused. That audio clip, like most of the courtroom audio we're using in this episode, comes from our friends at WSB Radio. The individual questioning always begins with the judge asking yes or no questions that are required by law. I feel like I've heard them about a million times by now, and I can recite a lot of them by heart. Here are the three big ones. Have you formed or expressed an opinion about the guilt or innocence of Justin Ross Harris? Do you have any bias or prejudice toward the defendant? Are you perfectly impartial to both the state and the defense? Most of the jurors have said they had formed an opinion, were biased against Harris, or were not impartial. Then the prosecutors, Chuck Boring or Jesse Evans, questioned the potential juror. Then the defense lawyers, either Maddox Kilgore or Brian Lumpkin, take their turn. It's like watching a carefully choreographed dance, except that the juror doesn't always know they're being choreographed. And everybody, the judge and the attorneys for both sides, keep telling the jurors that there are no right or wrong answers. Just tell us what you think. We want your opinion. Not what you think we want to hear, but what you actually believe. But the prosecution and defense keep pulling this way and that, probing for friends, searching for enemies. Here are lead defense attorney Maddox Kilgore and lead prosecutor Chuck Boring. Has he indicated to you whether or not he shares with his girlfriend or fiance that he looks at pornographic websites? I know you had an issue regarding a disorderly conduct years ago. You had a best friend who'd had some success on a dating site. You've known somebody that's a victim of a homicide. Here's the dance. I call it the rehabilitation game. The potential juror says she has already made up her mind that Harris is guilty. The defense is thinking, we don't want that one. The prosecution is thinking exactly the opposite. So the prosecutor tries to keep that juror in play. So far, from what I've seen, prosecutors Chuck Boring and Jesse Evans are very good at keeping jurors in play. They're rehabilitating the jurors. That's Marietta defense attorney Ashley Merchant, who has followed the Harris case closely and has tried cases against Chuck Boring and before Judge Mary Staley. So basically, when a juror says they have a bias or they said that they already believe someone's guilty, the state has an opportunity to do what we call rehabilitate them, which means they're asking them questions, almost cross-examining them to get them to concede that they could remain unbiased. It's an immense amount of pressure because you have to think that they're going into this case knowing that Jesse Evans and Chuck Boring are the state and they believe in that power of the bench. And so the state is asking them questions about whether or not they could follow what the judge, who is the highest person in the courtroom, is going to tell them. And it's very hard for someone to say, you know what, no, I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm not going to be able to follow the law, even if the judge tells me to. Um, the problem is the jurors, when they're asked open-ended questions at the beginning, that's when they're the most honest. So they're coming in and they're saying, you know what, I've heard about it, I already think he's guilty. Um, I, I don't think it's reasonable, his defense, that this was an accident. And so that's when they're very honest. But then when they're cross-examined and they are questioned and questioned and questioned by the state repetitively, they come to agree with what the state's saying. Well, couldn't you 
agree to do this? Couldn't you agree to do this? Most people give in and say, oh, yeah, you know, sure, that sounds reasonable. And so they're agreeing with what the state is saying versus what they've said originally, which was, no, I actually already think he's guilty. Once a juror says he or she believes Harris is guilty, Boring or Evans, without exception, ask a series of questions. First, the juror is told, the judge will instruct you that the defendant is presumed innocent and doesn't have to present any evidence if he chooses not to. Can you follow that instruction? Two, she's going to tell you that the prosecution has the burden of proof and has to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Can you follow that instruction? Three, if the prosecution does not meet its burden of proof, can you find the defendant not guilty? And then comes the talismanic moment, the moment of truth. Regardless of what opinions you bring into this trial, can you lay your opinions aside? Can you base your decision solely on the evidence that comes into this courtroom and the instructions of law from the judge? If the answer here is yes, there's a good chance the juror will stay in the game. If the answer is no, Boring and Evans end their questioning and sit down at the prosecution table, signaling that juror is gone. But more often than not, by the time they sit down, they've elicited the answers they wanted to hear. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. As you can imagine, this has been somewhat frustrating for lead defense attorney Kilgore. When arguing one of his challenges, he let some of that frustration show. We're actually arguing over somebody who sat right there and said, I think he's guilty. I'm not impartial. I do not presume he's innocent. Kilgore has argued that jurors who appear to have pretty fixed opinions about Harris's guilt should be excused for cause. The cause being that the juror had an admitted bias. And that's regardless as to whether they've said they can put their opinions aside and base their decisions on the evidence and the law. Kilgore has won a few of those challenges but he's also lost some too. This means it's possible a person who came into the trial believing Harris is guilty will sit in judgment of him. Here's Ashley Merchant again. A lot of it comes down to the judge because a lot of the jury issues are what we call discretionary, which means it's up to the judge to decide whether or not those jurors should be removed for cause. And I, I have tried a high-profile case in front of Judge Staley, and um, she tends to let jurors stay on. She tends to err on the side of not removing them for cause, where some judges are on the other side and say, you know, anytime I have any suspicion of bias, I'm going to remove them. So what does this mean? It means he's having a very difficult time finding an unbiased jury. It means that the jury that's going to be selected most likely will already be predisposed to find him guilty. And so the defense, instead of working under the presumption of innocence, they're working to try and convince someone 
to abandon what they already believe, essentially. So you've got jurors who are coming in saying, I think he's guilty. Well, you want jurors who are coming in saying, I don't think anything and the state has to prove it. Well, at this point, the tables have turned. The state doesn't even have to prove it to these jurors. They're saying they already believe it. So now the defense almost has a burden where they have to actually try and disprove guilt, which is something that we normally don't have to do in the justice system, and we're not supposed to have to do. So how can this happen? You have a steady flow of potential jurors walking into the courtroom saying they think Harris is guilty, and they're being qualified to sit in judgment of him. Why? Well because Georgia's appellate courts have said it's okay. The prosecution has asked Judge Staley to rely on Miller v. State when it comes to qualifying jurors. The Georgia Supreme Court issued that ruling in 2002. Let's pause a minute while I tell you about the Miller case. It's not just some dusty old file on the back shelf of some law library. Miller began inside a Cherokee County school bus. Joshua Belliardo was a 13-year-old middle school student who had been bullied and taunted by a 15-year-old named Jonathan Miller. On a bus ride home one afternoon, Miller had started in again on Belliardo. He called Josh the kind of names that adolescent boys used to cut another down. When the bus stopped, Jonathan asked whether he should hit Josh on the back of the head or in the face. When the two got off, Jonathan hit Josh on the back of the head and Josh collapsed. Jonathan hit him again, kicked him, and then fled the scene. Josh never regained consciousness. Doctors determined that when Jonathan hit Josh, he severed an artery that emptied blood into the 13-year-old's brain and spinal column. By the time he arrived at the hospital, Joshua's brain had stopped normal function. He was removed from life support two days later. You can sort of imagine what the media did with that case. News outlets around the country reported the story. A state legislator made Miller a poster boy for school bullying legislation that was passed in the heat of the news. On radio talk shows, callers opined freely about what they thought should be done to Miller. Six months later, Jonathan was tried as an adult, found guilty of murder, and sentenced to life in prison. Miller's lawyers asked that Jonathan's conviction be set aside because the trial judge denied their motion to strike eight jurors for cause. Most of those jurors had said they believed Miller was, or probably was, guilty. The court rejected the appeal. It ruled that none of the jurors held an opinion regarding Miller's guilt that was, quote, so fixed and definite that they would be unable to set that opinion aside and decide the case based upon the evidence and the trial court's instructions, unquote. When questioning jurors, Boring and Evans have often used almost that exact language. It's an interesting question. Especially in a high-profile case like Miller, or like Harris, hasn't most of the public heard about the crime before the case goes to trial? Haven't many people already formed an opinion about the defendant's guilt? Well, yeah. Don Samuel, our resident legal expert, has written books on criminal case law and tried some of the highest-profile cases in recent Georgia history. He says prosecutors have to be careful with jurors' biases. The important thing to remember is that there's nothing wrong with people having biases. Everybody has biases. Everybody has prejudices. Everybody has preconceived opinions about something. And the question is whether they can be fair or not. To determine whether they can be fair, it doesn't make any sense to allow a lawyer to browbeat the juror into, you know, declaring their fairness, because everybody would say that ultimately. 
right? I mean, unless you're related to the victim, you're going to say, okay, I'll be fair. If the judge tells me to be fair, I'll be fair. I think I'm a fair person. But that doesn't really um, plumb the depths of a bias if all you're doing is kind of forcing a juror to say that um, they can be fair. You need to, you know, a, a judge ought to um, prohibit leading questions that just demand a particular answer and allow the lawyers to ask questions in such a way that the judge can feel comfortable, really feel comfortable, that the jury that's being selected is a fair and impartial jury, not a jury that simply has been forced into saying that they are fair and impartial. In a small community, obviously, almost every juror will know about a pending case. And in a big city, if people read the newspaper, they're going to know about the high-profile cases. And that doesn't mean that they're disqualified. The fact that they read a newspaper doesn't mean that they shouldn't be a juror. What's important, though, is that people will say, yes, I read the newspaper, but I understand that's not evidence. And I understand that's just one reporter's view of what some witness said. And the, the reporter may be wrong. The witness may be wrong. All I want to hear is the evidence from the witness stand. But I don't want a juror who's read the news and absolutely formed an opinion and the burden of proof is going to shift to the defendant to dissuade the juror uh, of the opinion that he or she has already formed. All of that notwithstanding, I've been surprised that a number of jurors with pretty strong opinions have been qualified to serve. One in particular, juror number 26, is a nurse practitioner with a psychology degree from the University of Michigan. She's a news junkie who listens to NPR. She said she thinks Harris is guilty and that she's told her husband that. How does someone forget that his child's in the back seat, she asked, while being questioned. I don't recall ever having left my son in the car. I don't get it. And she also said, not only did it happen, it didn't occur to him at some point in the day that he had left his child in the car. Then, when asked whether she could set her opinions aside, she answered, I can follow instructions, but I'm going into this with a bias. She was qualified. Also qualified was juror number 44, who has worked almost three decades as a FedEx courier. He said he considers defense attorneys to be a little shady, and when asked about the OJ verdict, he said he was guilty as you know what. Initially, juror number 44 said he had only a cursory knowledge of the case, but toward the end, he said Harris would need to account for why he watched Internet videos about animals dying in hot cars. Then, he said he knew a bit about Harris's sexting activity. Here's defense attorney Brian Lumpkin questioning juror number 44. You took that to be pornography? Well, when you drop your drawers and take a picture of yourself and send it through the Internet, yeah, that would be pornography. Next on Breakdown. The jury may finally be seated, and the actual trial will begin. We will be offering weekly podcast updates on Monday, throughout the course of testimony and all the way through to the verdict. We'll review the important developments of the week and tell you what to watch for in the week to come. Have you for any reason formed any opinion in regard to the guilt or innocence of the defendant? Yes. I'm married to someone who has extremely strong views. Season 2 of Breakdown... Death in a Hot Car, Mistake or Murder, is a production of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The story is reported and told by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. Audio production by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative. The music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Bo Emerson, Chris Nicholson, and Chris Basta. Special thanks to Burt Roten, Ross Cavett, Chris Nicholson, and Buddy Hall.
I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologeticallyATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,